One of the unfortunate side effects of a short-term mindset is thinking that everything around you is a new idea on Earth for the first time. Tonight's speaker will show us that concepts we often associate with the late 20th century have deep historical antecedents that often go back thousands of years. A true long now undertaking, if I've seen one. Give a round of applause for Adrian Mayer. Conversations at the Interval take place a few times a month at the Long Now Foundation's bar, cafe, and museum venue, The Interval, in San Francisco. This podcast is brought to you by Stripe, a company that's working to build the economic infrastructure of the internet. They help people start internet businesses and accept online payments from customers all over the world. Thanks, everybody. What an honor to be invited to the interval. Just perfect place to tell some of the first science fiction stories, right? Um, here's my clicker. I'm going to move this. A little bit about myself. I'm a historian of ancient science, and so I investigate the crossroads um, between classical Greek myth, uh, archaeology, history, art, uh, I'm interested in uncovering nuggets of historical and scientific realities that are embedded in mythology and ancient writings. So you could say I'm a historian of ancient curiosity. Um, I'm, uh, I'm seeking the first inklings of the scientific impulse. And for my book, uh, Gods and Robots, I asked who first imagined robots uh, automatons, self-moving devices. Most historians would trace uh, the first automatons to the Middle Ages uh, with the clockwork mechanisms, but I wondered, um, could the ideas, the concepts of automatons uh, creating animated statues, uh, self-moving devices, could those ideas have been imagined long before the technology uh, existed, made them possible? And I should warn you that some philosophers of science uh, actually claim no one in antiquity could imagine automatons until the technology already existed. They're misinformed. <laughs> Where does innovation come from if it doesn't come from imagining what doesn't already exist? And it turns out that as early as the time of Homer, more than 2,500 years ago, the Greeks were imagining, now in myth, um, how one might fabricate artificial life, self-moving devices, animated beings, artificial beings. These entities were always described as products of technology. I'm not talking about lifeless objects or inert matter that's brought to life by a magical spell or just a god's command. The process that the uh, Greeks imagined for these entities could be called biotechne ancient Greek for life through craft. That's the root of our word biotechnology. Now, automatons that were, that were always described as made, not born, manufactured, not reproduced biologically, appeared in some myths that I think you're all probably pretty familiar with. You're just not used to looking for automatons in them. So I'm going to be talking about Jason and the Argonauts, the firebringer Prometheus, and Pandora. These remarkable tales about creating artificial life were ancient thought experiments 
uh, about what could be achieved if only you had the creativity and the powers of a god or the gods. And I should add, these myths were taken seriously by philosophers and playwrights in antiquity as ways to think about trying to imitate, improve, or surpass nature. And what's interesting uh, for us tonight is that they foreshadow some of the doubts and fears that robotics and AI technology uh, uh, that we're facing today. One rising anxiety uh, today is the potential for uh, totalitarian uh, oppression. Um, Maybe you, some of you read the article by uh, Yuval Harari, um, Why Technology Favors Tyranny. Um, he predicted AI will empower human tyrants to impose ever greater totalitarianism with ever greater ease. Now that association between technology and uh, tyranny, that might seem like a very modern concept, um, but I'm here to tell you tonight that it's a very old story. I found that Greek myths about artificial life, uh, they have a striking feature in common. All of the automatons and self-moving devices are deployed by those with supreme power, either gods like Zeus or kings. So as early as Homer, and we're talking about 750, 650 BC, people were imagining robotic servants lifelike replicas of humans and animals, and even AI. And most of these were made by Hephaestus, the god of technology and invention. He's the only god with a job. He's the only <laughs> god who sweats. He's always shown at work in his forge. He's a blacksmith, and he has wonderful powers. He has a brilliant resume of techno marvels. Um, Homer's Iliad describes how Hephaestus constructed a set of automatic bellows for his forge. These bellows could uh, blow or blast uh, uh, air according to his needs in his forge, so he didn't, he didn't need to uh, adjust them. Uh, they, they could anticipate what he needed. Hephaestus also built a set of automatic gates for the heavens so that they could open and close at the approach of the gods' chariots. The first uh, automated garage doors, you might say. <laughs> um, I don't want to draw any direct lines from antiquity to today's innovations, but you just can't help thinking of these things. Next, he fabricated a fleet of self-driving delivery carts that they brought nectar and ambrosia to the gods' banquets, and then they returned when they were empty. Now, I thought, uh, I think his most amazing uh, invention uh, was the crew of female androids made of gold. I wish I had an ancient picture of them. These will have to do. Uh, <laughs> um, they served as his personal assistants, and they moved around efficiently to and fro in his, in his workshop. Homer describes these uh, golden maidens as he says that they looked like real young women, just like real young women, and they were endowed with strength, reason, and mind, uh, but even more mind-blowing, he says they were equipped with all the knowledge of the gods. All the knowledge of the gods. That's quite a data dump. I mean, you don't need that much, you don't need that much knowledge, but who knows, you never know, you might, um, but it does make you think of a mythical version of AI. 
These were labor-saving devices, that intelligent machines, and they were all made for the benefit of the gods and goddesses. And when they're confined to the realm of the heavens, Hephaestus's inventions, they're benign, they're charming, they're harmless. But when such things are sent down to earth, that's when the trouble starts, violence and uh, suffering follow. Let's consider the fate of Prometheus. I'm sure you all remember, he stole divine fire, a technology of fire, to help human beings. And in the myth, Zeus, the all-powerful king of gods and men, was a vindictive tyrant. To punish Prometheus, he chained him to a mountain, and then he ordered Hephaestus, and we hear that it was against Hephaestus's will, but he was ordered to do this, to forge a bronze eagle to torment Prometheus. And Zeus's eagle was imagined as a metallic raptor that arrived like clockwork each day, almost drone-like. In the Argonautica, the, the epic poem of Jason and the Argonauts, um, the sailors observed the eagle's machine-like movements. And I'll just quote from the Argonautica. Each afternoon, the gleaming eagle flew over our ship with a loud whirring noise, and we saw how the feathers of each wing rose and fell, moved up and down like a bank of polished oars. Now Zeus, of course, always uh, really vindictive, he took vicious revenge on humankind for accepting the gift of stolen fire. He commanded Hephaestus to construct a ravishing and seductive artificial young woman. And Zeus's specifications were this should be evil disguised as beauty. And you all know who it was. It was Pandora. Um, probably not the Pandora of the fairy tales of your youth. Um, she was not just an innocent young woman. Poets describe this female android as made, not born. So she's a technological product. Um, she was to, to be sent to Earth with a sealed jar that was filled with misfortunes and suffering to plague humans for eternity. And in the myth, uh, here we see uh, a vase painting of Zeus admiring Pandora before he sends her down to Earth. And in the myth, we hear that Zeus took sadistic glee in his plan. It was said that he laughed out loud as he admired Pandora, his gift for humanity. So uh, she was really a fembot uh, with one mission on Earth, to insinuate herself into uh, human society and then release, unseal that jar. Uh, the swarm of evils would then come out and plague humankind forever. Um, and Zeus ordered his messenger, Hermes, uh, to escort Pandora to Earth. There's an interesting vase painting, I don't have a picture of it, but it shows Zeus and Hermes exchanging a sly smile as they uh, are about to inflict Pandora on, on Earth. Well, Hermes took Pandora down to Earth and gave her as a bride to a happy-go-lucky guy named Epimetheus. Epimetheus was Prometheus's brother. And Prometheus warned Epimetheus not to accept the dangerous gift from Zeus. But Epimetheus was dazzled by Pandora. He went for the short-term gains. And we hear from the poets only later did he realize his terrible error after she opened the jar. And I just want to point out, uh, 
The name Prometheus in ancient Greek, um, it means forethought, looking ahead. And Epimetheus, it means hindsight. Uh, Epimetheus is the perfect patsy for <laughs> Zeus's cruel trick. There's a very famous vase showing Pandora being prepared for her mission. And the artists, uh, you can see all the, all the other figures are really moving around, they're active. Pandora's standing there stiffly like a sort of statue or a doll. Uh, she has an uncanny smile on her face as she's being prepared for her assignment on Earth. Um, and here's a, a close-up of that. I think uh, Pandora's kind of eerily similar to the evil robot Maria in the great silent film Metropolis. And if you haven't seen it, I highly recommend this film. It's 1927 silent film. It was made just a few years after the invention of the word robot. And already in 1927, people were imagining a future techno-dystopia uh, where the rich ruling class oppressed uh, the miserable uh, workers with automation and robots. Now, in the Greek myths, as I noted, um, Hephaestus's automatons are harmless as long as they're confined to the realm of the gods. So these stories seem to be telling us uh, that intelligent machines like self-moving carts and the golden servants, um, they're good to imagine as thought experiments, uh, but the myths imply that such things can be pretty dangerous and destructive in the real world of humans. Now, another ancient myth tells how Hephaestus forged the first bronze robot. And I can't resist showing uh, Ray Harryhausen's uh, fabulous image of Talos, the, the giant bronze robot. Um, the, the automaton was called Talos, and it was made for King Minos, who ruled Crete with an iron hand. So Talos was a killer robot. He was intended to defend the island kingdom of King Minos, and he was programmed uh, to spot strangers, spot uh, anyone coming uh, ashore, and actually could pick up and hurl boulders at ships to sink them. Um, and the coins of ancient Crete boasted about that, uh, that uh, capability of Talos. Now, should anyone make it ashore in close combat, this bronze robot could heat his body red hot, grab up a victim, hug them to his chest, and roast them alive. And this uh, mirror um, shows uh, that capability. So Talos was imagined as a kind of cyborg, half human, half machine. He's able to carry out complex uh, activities. Um, and he fits the definition of robot, in a way, because he, we know details about his inner workings, and he even has a power source. Talos, we're, we're told, has a single tube or a conduit that went from his head to his feet. And in that tube or conduit pulsed Ichor. Ichor is the life fluid of the immortal gods. That's his power source. The entire viva system, if you will, was see, uh, sealed. The whole system was sealed with a bronze bolt on his ankle. It's his weak point. When they dropped anchor in, in Crete, um, Jason and the Argonauts, uh, it looked like they were doomed to be Talos's uh, next victims. But luckily for them, they had the sorceress Medea along with them. And she figured out 
how to destroy Talos. She realized that if you remove the bronze bolt in the robot's ankle, his power source would drain out. And ancient Greek vase paintings from 2,500 years ago showed Jason using a tool to remove the bolt. This is an example. This power source, uh, Ikor, then, we're told, flowed out like molten lead. It's a kind of technological um, description. Um, the great robot of King Minos toppled over and expired. So not only was Talos created with technology, but he was taken down with technology. Technology was required to dismantle him. And it's interesting that the ancient Greek artists really uh, emphasized the sort of human-like traits of this bronze machine um, and, and his unfair death. I mean, after all, he's killed just uh, while he's doing his job, right? He's uh, uh, doing his job for the tyrant king. And if you look closely at this vase painting, you can see that the artist has painted a teardrop on the uh, robot's cheek. Kind of reminds you of Hal, the death of Hal in uh, 2001. Um, Medea also figured out how to overcome yet another set of deadly automatons forged by Hephaestus for yet another king who wanted Jason dead. This king ordered Jason to carry out two impossible tasks. First, he had to yoke a pair of bronze, fire-breathing bulls and then plow a field with these animated bronze oxen. Um, and then he had to defeat the invincible army of robot-like warriors that would spring up from the plowed field. And the evil king was confident that if, even if Jason could somehow avoid being uh, burned to death by the robo-bulls, he and his men would be slaughtered by the armed androids springing up from the field. Well, Medea created a special drug to give Jason superpowers to wrangle the bronze bulls um, so he could plow that field without being incinerated. And then at nightfall, um, the dreadful warriors in bronze armor began to emerge from that plowed field. This is a medieval image, but I, I think it's pretty good. Um, Techno-wizard Medea to the rescue again. Now, Medea, you really want her on your side if you're going to be facing these automatons. She's an ancient hacker. She figures out the vulnerable points, the weak points, and she exploits them. She knew that those automatons, or unnatural soldiers, were uh, essentially hardwired to attack. She cleverly hacked the coding imprinted in the soldiers' um, what she did, she told Jason to throw some stones into, into their midst, into their ranks, and that would trigger a fatal domino effect, a sort of cascade uh, effect. They would sense the blows on their shields, and then they turn immediately to the, the person closest to them, and they turn on each other in a frenzy. Confusion uh, ensues, and then Jason and the Argonauts can rush in and finish them off. And they escape the evil king's plot. Well, notice that in all of these myths, the machines of malice uh, belong to tyrannical rulers, whether it's Zeus or mythical kings. They used automatons to wield absolute power, to torture, or to kill. So was this use of biotechne, is it only an imaginary uh, feature of cruel tyrants in mythology? Uh, what about real life? What about the real world? Did any actual tyrants deploy real automatons and machines in historical times? 
Yes, they did. Um, in fact, the autocratic fascination with automatons as instruments of power was not just a theme in the classical myths, like their counterparts in the myths. The autocratic rulers, uh, many of them, I found uh, quite a few examples, commissioned animated statues and machines to inflict pain and death. And this was documented as early as the 6th century BC. And I don't know if I should give a trigger warning. Um, some of these stories are pretty grim. Um, the first example, historical example, involves a fiery bronze bull to incinerate victims. Now, was it inspired by the bronze uh, robot Talos? Um, heating his body red hot? Uh, or maybe the fire-breathing bulls? Uh, in the myth, that's unknown. Um, this particular deadly bronze bull belonged to the cold-blooded tyrant named Phalaris of Sicily. And he became absolute dictator of the island in 570 BC. During his reign of terror, a brilliant sculptor named Perilaeus presented King Phalaris with the statue of a bull so true to life it seemed to breathe. Now, I want to note here that ancient artists were capable of making incredibly realistic sculptures of people and animals. Uh, these are all real examples of bronze statues from antiquity that have inlaid eyes and pupils, inlaid uh, fingernails, teeth, and uh, even eyelashes. And remember, they, they weren't just bronze like these. They were painted realistically with natural natural looking paint that actually contained wax in the pigment so that they really looked real. Um, some of them were animated, some could blink, they could turn their heads, they could move their arms, and some could make sounds. Perilaeus, the craftsman, explained to the king that this hollow bronze bowl was a torture device. Just lock someone inside and build a fire under it. As the bowl's body heats up, the man roasts to death, he said. Perilaeus then described the fiendish system of tubes that he had installed in the bull's interior. And these tubes directed smoke and flames uh, to come out of the bull's nostrils, and the pipes amplified the victim's shrieks through the bull's mouth. It gave the impression of a real bellowing, fire-breathing bull like those in the myth of Jason and the Argonauts. Now, the statue is essentially animated by the human being uh, trapped inside and the apparatus inside. King was impressed. He asked for a demonstration. And as soon as Perilaeus crawled inside to yell into the pipes, Phalaris locked the trap door and roasted his first victim. And there would be many more. Now, Phalaris was detested for his brutality, and this story is told by many historians. Um, many of them actually saw the bull afterwards, so it really did exist. Um, he was detested for his brutality. He was finally overthrown after about 20 years, but that diabolical bronze bull lived on, not just in, um, in stories, but physically. More than 300 years later, during the first Punic War between Rome and Carthage, Hannibal's father, um, Hamilcar Barca, invaded Sicily during the Punic, first Punic War. He plundered the treasures of Sicily, and one of his prizes was the notorious bronze bull. He shipped it to Carthage. 
across the Mediterranean into Tunisia. The bull remained in Carthage for another hundred years. Now, we can only guess how the bull served the rulers of Carthage, but I will remind you that the Carthaginians were reported to sacrifice their children in a furnace shaped like their god. When the Roman general Scipio finally defeated Carthage, 146 BC, he recovered the, the bronze bull and he shipped it back to Sicily. And he set it up as a monument, he said, to the viciousness of tyrants like Phalaris. The message is, trust the Romans uh, and you won't have any more tyrants like this. Um, the sculptor, Perilaeus, was also castigated for using his skills to uh, uh, make such a project for a tyrant. Phalaris, um, sorry to say, was not the only malicious ruler uh, to own a realistic statue that was brought to life by the uh, screams of the burning victim. Sicily, it turns out, was a hotbed of such devices. There were many others. Um, another Sicilian king burned people inside a giant bronze statue of a man. Yet another king in Sicily had a realistic bronze stallion that he used for the same purposes. And these kings were known to offer rewards to artisans and inventors uh, for making novel torture machines. And now I just want to point out that novel machines of war um, were also rewarded by powerful kings. In 400 BC, the tyrant Dionysus of Syracuse, Sicily again, um, invited inventors to a contest to make advanced weapons. And that competition is what resulted in the first mechanized catapults, taking warfare to new levels of killing. Rewards and prizes uh, started attracting um, military engineers and inventors to the courts of Philip II uh, of Macedonia, Alexander's father, Demetrius Polyorcetes, also of Macedonia, and Mithridates the Great of Pontus, the brilliant scientist Archimedes also devised many ingenious war machines for Sicily. You can see an example uh, there on the, um, on the, on the right, lower right of a giant uh, claw that would pick up ships and sink them. And so while military engineers were developing crossbow artillery and powerful torsion catapults in the fourth and third centuries, other engineers and inventors were flocking to Alexandria, Egypt. Alexandria, Egypt at that time was the Silicon Valley of antiquity. That had the museum, the library, and inventors actually designed and constructed a great variety of self-moving devices, self-driving theaters, um, complex automatons, some of them miniature, some of them colossal, using mechanics, and uh, they even had plans to use magnetism. Um, King Ptolemy II of Alexandria commissioned their most advanced designs for his magnificent spectacles in Alexandria. His grand procession of 279 BC, it was a, just an outrageous parade of stunning engineering marvels that wound through the streets for days. You can see the, uh, the streets of Alexandria, Alexandria in this lower, uh, lower right here. And there were many monumental, lifelike, animated statues of gods and goddesses each on carts pulled by 300 men. On one cart, for example, sat a colossal 15-foot-tall 
goddess. Um, she was dressed in real silk clothing, um, sitting there regally on her throne, and then periodically along the route of the parade, this automaton stood up, poured a jug of milk into a large bowl, and then sat down again. Um, all a very um, uh, stately manner, of course. Um, during his reign, King Ptolemy executed many members of his family and his political enemies. He declared himself a god, but his automatons, as far as we know, were nonviolent. So those grandiose spectacles um, of technology were intended to drive home his godlike absolute power. Well, history records another dictator who demonstrated his iron rule in another parade with another giant self-moving automaton. After the Macedonians crushed democratic Athens, they set up the brutal tyrant Demetrius to rule the city. He destroyed the democracy and he commissioned a giant animatronic snail. Now, I hear there's someone here who has a snail that he drives around town. So, what a coincidence. I guess snails were, have been <laughs> automatic, uh, automaton snails have been uh, the thing for centuries, millennia. He sent, this, he sent this great snail to crawl at the head of Athens' most sacred procession. And as the realistic giant snail inched along the route, it even oozed a trail of slime along the streets. Now you might ask, why make a giant self-moving gastropod? Snails were considered slow. Is this, is this how your vehicle works? No, probably not. Oh, this is this is, a, <laughs> this is a, a design from an engineer in Amsterdam who tried to figure out how that giant snail moved. But in antiquity, snails were considered slow, clumsy, lowly creatures. Um, to drive home the insult, uh, right behind that giant snail came a troop of asses. Um, the grotesque spectacle uh, was a dramatic and very public way to humiliate the demoralized, defeated citizens of Athens, once so celebrated for their quick action and intelligence. Uh, Demetrius, what happened to him? He was later expelled from Athens. All 360 of his statues to himself uh, were smashed, and it was reported that he died of a venomous snake bite. Meanwhile, in Sparta, in 207 BC, the ruthless dictator Nabus seized power. The reign of Nabus and his wife, Apega, uh, was long remembered for extortion, torture, and executions of masses of their subjects. Apega was said to far surpass her husband in cruelty and murder. And maybe that's why Nabus decided to fa uh, fabricate or commission a mechanical facsimile of Apega, a machine that resembled the queen with extraordinary fidelity. The robotic replica wore Apega's finery and probably had a lifelike uh, wax or maybe a plaster cast uh, painted of Apega's own face. Now, someone on YouTube, some engineers have actually uh, 
recreated this um, terrible device. Nabus would summon a citizen of Sparta, ply them with wine to get them drunk, and then demand their money and their property. And if they refused, he would say, perhaps my queen Apega will be more persuasive. Um, the man was then taken to meet the fate, fake Apega. And when he reached out and touched or took her hand, the robot stood up, triggering springs to raise her arms, which suddenly grabbed the victim. And under her fancy clothing, the body was studded with iron spikes. Levers and ratchets tightened Apega's deadly embrace, drawing the victim closer and driving the spikes deeper. And with this impaling device in the form of his wife, historians wrote that Nabus destroyed many men in Sparta. After 17 years, the tyrant Nabus was finally assassinated. I can't help noticing they all come to a bad end, these tyrants. <laughs> so there's some good news here. Um, it's often said that robots fulfill three functions, labor, sex, and spectacle or entertainment. Now, the ancient Greeks had those covered. But the examples of automatons in myth and history also suggest that maybe we should add power as another function. The drive to dominate and exert power led tyrants of myth and historical times to seek and commission nefarious technology. And now, you, at this point, you might be wondering if I cherry-picked uh, uh, examples of the Greek rulers um, using uh, automatons for harm or, or the myths. Um, and if you ask me later uh, in the Q&A, as far as I know, there are two exceptions, one uh, from myth and one from historical times. Um, as we saw, some of the historical automatons for inflicting harm do seem to somehow replicate or echo elements from the automatons of myth. And I'm thinking of those fiery uh, bronze bulls and, and the bronze robots, uh, Talos's burning embrace, kind of a perversion of uh, uh, human warmth. Um, we can't really prove uh, which way the causal arrow goes. Um, we can't prove that the myths inspired the tyrants uh, or their engineers, uh, but it, it is a question that comes to mind. It has been suggested that the spiked animated figure of a pega in Sparta might have inspired uh, the notorious medieval torture device that I'm sure you're all thinking of, the Iron Maiden. Um, I believe that the Iron Maiden was never actually made or used, but the idea may well have come from a pega. And we do know that the myth of Talos, uh, the automated bronze guardian of King Minos, that did inspire ideas of robotic, merciless iron knights in the Middle Ages. And here's uh, Leonardo da Vinci's uh, model. In fact, military engineers continued to be fascinated with the bronze guardian robot right up to the present day. Um, it's also interesting, just as a side note, that uh, security companies sometimes call themselves Talos. I think Cisco's security division is called Talos. Um, so they also know the myth. In the 1950s, the first surface-to-air naval missiles were named Talos rockets, uh, consciously after the, the myth. And there's cruel irony um, in the name of the latest military drones made by Elbit Systems, uh, 
to rain death in the Middle East. Um, they're named Hermes, after the sly messenger, the trickster messenger of the sadistic god Zeus, who did deliver Pandora to wreak destruction on mortals. And as we speak, Pentagon scientists um, working with Special Ops Com uh, Command and DARPA are developing a, a future, futuristic weaponized and AI-enhanced exoskeleton armor for soldiers, and they're actively soliciting uh, designs and ideas from tech inventors. And guess what they named the suit? Uh, T-A-L-O-S, so that they could have uh, the acronym TALOS. Well, in the myths, the tyrant god Zeus simply commanded Hephaestus to make machines that he used against humanity. In the historical instances, genius craftsmen offered uh, their work to powerful kings for rewards, and other autocrats held contests, much like DARPA does today. And we know that scientists today are designing AI and robotic technologies for powerful corporations, uh, the military, and for totalitarian states. Um, they present many of those innovations to the public as only beneficial, such as just examples from the media, lip-reading AI, GPS location services, facial recognition, biometric surveillance, smart lampposts like in Hong Kong, um, super soldiers, driverless vehicles, and drones. But I know everyone here can imagine darker uh, purposes. Well, to conclude, it might seem ironic or strange uh, here at the long now that I'm asking you to time travel back uh, more than 2,700 years, but now we do know that tech and tyranny have been linked for millennia. Uh, which way does the causal arrow go? Um, that's debatable. Uh, people have talked about that, but I think at this point it seems like the link itself might be the more pressing question. AI is advancing uh, at warp speed. Uh, it's outstripping our ability to uh, work out the ethical issues. And that unknowable black box problem of AI uh, seems to loom um, like Pandora's fateful sealed jar. Um, if there is a message from antiquity, it seems to be, will we be sh like short-sighted Epimetheus? who was dazzled by Pandora, or can we be more like Prometheus using our imagination and foresight to avoid turning over the future to tyranny in any form? Thank you. Hey everyone. Great. Hi. <laughs> Hi there. We just met a couple of weeks ago, so it's really uh, it's, it was really well timed. Uh, wonderful presentation. Yeah, thank you. I had just one thought. I don't know. I suspect there's other people out here um, staying with the, the Pandora images that I, I never knew that Pandora was a, a invent, uh, invented, crafted creature. And I'm kind of interested in why I didn't know that. <laughs> yes. And whether there's anything, there's an interesting story to be told about how that figure changed 
since the fact that she was invented and the whole thing was planned from the get-go and it wasn't her fault <laughs> seems like a significant shift from the story that I knew. And many people have pointed out that it uh, reminds them of Eve, of course. Um, I don't know how, I don't personally know how the story evolved from antiquity through the Middle Ages to this fairy tale Euro European version that we know, but there is a book by Panofsky and Panofsky called The Evolution of the Myth of Pandora. So uh, someone has worked on that problem. But one thing about the myth of Pandora that really interests me is the, is the, last, the last thing that's in her jar. Oh, and it was a jar, a sealed jar in antiquity, and a mistranslation in the uh, Renaissance made it into a box. Someone mistranslated it into a box, so we think of her uh, with a box. But all the artists show Pandora reeling back in horror at the swarm of evils coming out then because she was such an innocent girl with a tragic case of curiosity, but that's not the story at all. Um, and the last thing in the box was supposed to be hope, and all the fairy tale images show hope as a little fairy uh, who is bringing comfort to humankind because of all this disaster that has been unleashed upon them. And that's not in the original story either. Um, in antiquity, hope was not a good thing. Blind hope was... Philosophers and playwrights ha have debated since antiquity, was hope the worst or the best thing in Pandora's box? And there are even some ancient artists that show Pandora personified as a young woman popping up out of Pandora's jar, and she's got a crooked, sly smile on her face, like she's mocking you for believing that hope is going to help you. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, that ambiguity seems to get to the heart of the whole, uh, yeah. the whole problem. I mean, uh, tonight you, you just uh, talked about Greek examples. In the book, you also talk about examples from from the East and from other cultures, so it's, this is not the only place that we find this anticipation of automata, either in myth or in um, actual technologies. But there does seem to be something specific about the evolution of uh, made things in Greece that involves something you touched on briefly, which is the, the power of similitude. You know, the, the, that this is a moment if you look at previous at earlier Attic forms of statues, or if you look at Egyptian statues, there's an obvious distance between that and verisimilitude of, of the, the human body, and we, we really see that in art history, and it does seem to be different. So my question is, is I'm wondering if you could connect that to an issue that you do talk about also in your book that, that I think we, we can all um, Sort of enjoy today, which is this the uncanny valley. Absolutely. So yeah. it seems like the Greeks sort of discovered the uncanny valley in in objects in a way maybe that was sort of original to their artistic exploration. Absolutely. As I was reading descriptions in Homer, in both the Iliad and the Odyssey, of uh, people encountering very realistic animated statues, living statues they called them, um, I realized that although we think of the Uncanny Valley as totally modern, it was invented in, uh, uh, I think, 1970 by Ma Masahiro Mori, I think it is, the robotics engineer. And what's interesting is he invented it for, uh, when he was looking at prosthetics, apparently, is what uh, made him get that Uncanny Valley feeling, and he identified it then and extrapolated it to robots. But Homer describes uh, Odysseus and various other... 
uh, characters encountering hyper-realistic paintings that seem to move and have sound, almost described like movies. Um, and they feel a very disturbed, uh, mixed amb ambivalence of absolute fascination, sort of morbid fascination and, and awe. Uh, and it, it's obviously the uncanny valley. And if you think of, of the, uh, the slide that I showed of those hyper-realistic statues, think of them, and they're life-size, and they're painted, and they are uh, often in temples, and um, they don't have electric lights. So when you see them, they're in a dark temple, maybe lit by maybe outside lit by moonlight or in the dark or just with an oil lamp flickering. I mean, they look like they're moving and, and about to breathe. So the uncanny valley sensation goes all the way back to antiquity and not probably just to Greece. Right. I mean, there was an example of a, a Chinese inventor who invented an automaton that he showed to the emperor. And uh, it could move and dance and act like a regular person, and the emperor was amused until the automaton winked at one of his wives. And, <laughs> and the emperor said, off with his head, and the inventor immediately said, wait, 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 no, it's, it's, I made it. And he opened it up and showed that it, every organ was an exact replica of, of a human anatomy lesson. So, the Chinese were into making really unnaturally real, hyper-real, surreal uh, replicas as well. I, I think the, the you, you brought you brought up the emotions here. You know, we're talking about the uncanny valley and the and the mixture, the strange mixture of awe and wonder. And wonder is a very important feature of Greek thought, of Greek philosophy. Philosophy begins in wonder, uh, and. And then yet there's this element of dread or a bit of horror to it. And this, to me, connects to, to, the, to my next question, which is that when we think about this, this link between power and automata, that the bronze bowl that roasts people alive isn't just you know, a bowl that roasts people alive. It's also a bronze bowl. So there's some way in which power is using not just the torture device, which inflicts physical suffering, but there's something about controlling the imagination or controlling our reaction to, to things that have similitude that seems to be part of that gesture of power that you're really pointing to in a really interesting way. So I just want to kind of push you a little bit more to think about what is that, if robots are not just for labor, for sex and for entertainment, and they're for power. What is it? What? How is tyranny enhanced by the similitude, by the fact that it looks like something that it's not? Well, the descriptions of uh, um, Ptolemy II, uh, his grand procession, um, it gave the impression that the gods were on his side, that that he could have living images, almost uh, living statues of the gods in. In his parade, it it seems to give their approval to all of his policies and uh, his reign. Um, so I think it, he was also uh, very interested in trying to use magnetism. Um, he married his sister, 
And when she died unexpectedly, he made her into a goddess. And he had all these inventors working on trying to make a statue of this new goddess that he was going to bring to uh, Alexandria, uh, his sister, wife. Uh, she was going to be floating in midair in a temple because she would be, be uh, a realistic statue of her. And if you see statues of his wife, um, they are just shockingly realistic and sexy. And so this statue was going to hang there in midair with a magnetic roof uh, and an um, iron bar inside of the statue. Of course, that's impossible because of Earnshaw's law or something. <laughs> it uh, doesn't happen until um, electromagnetism. But uh, he was the first to try to use that. It would just show incredible power and convince people that not only was he a goddess, he declared himself a god, he declared his wife a goddess. So I think that's part of the power. Yeah. Well, I could keep asking you questions, but I suspect there's going to be some out there. Joe, you got something for me? Yes, indeed. We're first going to start with one from our online audience. Wow. <laughs> I didn't know there was an online audience. You are indeed. You mentioned that there were two examples that were not deadly applications. Can <laughs> you talk a bit more about these examples? Yes, benevolent examples um, by someone with power. So. Um, I'll talk about the myth, mythological example that I found. When, when Odysseus is trying to get home after the uh, Trojan War, that's what the Odyssey is all about. He's been at the Trojan War. He's a vet of the Trojan War, which lasted 10 years. He's been wandering for 10 years. He can't get home. He wants to get back to his native island and his family. And he meets all these people that restrain him. But near the end of the book, he goes to... Uh, a mysteriously advanced society called Phasea, and it's uh, run by a king, Alcanus, who asks, asks him his story, and Odysseus says, I just want to get home so badly. I'm longing for my wife. And the, the king says, well, I'll send you home in one of my ships. I have a fleet of ships that require no rowers, no captains, no pilots, no navigators. They're navigated by thought alone. All you need to do is give the ship your destination, and it will devise the route. It's not uh, affected by storm or currents. Take you home and return to me the next day. And you can't help but think of uh, something that's got off this vast archive of navigational charts of the known world, and it will devise the route. Um, and it has a happy ending. Odysseus gets home. Nothing bad happens. It's wonderful. It's the only story I know from myth of an automaton that didn't cause trouble for humans on Earth. So that's the mythological example. And the historical example comes from the 4th century BC in the time of Plato. In fact, it involves a friend of Plato named Archytas, who was a mechanical engineer. Um, he wrote a lot of treatises. They're all lost, unfortunately, but we have quotations from his treatises and they were described. So he was a serious uh, uh, inventor of mechanical devices, but he was also a statesman in the Greek colony of Tarentum. And he invented the first uh, model of a bird, a realistic model of a bird that could fly. 
and it flew a few feet or yards and, th and then had to be reset. Um, today's engineers think that it might have been steam-driven somehow. Um, but that's the first automaton that we know of that, um, that flew is totally benign. And it, he was also, according to Aristotle, the inventor of children's toys that were mechanical. One of them was this sort of clacking thing that you can buy them now. It's a toy where the, the, um, the I can't describe it. I had a slide of one. I thought of buying one on Amazon and showing it to you, but it's, it's, it's a kid's toy that's mechanical engineer. And he made these benign things just to teach people, um, educate them about uh, the physics of mechanical engineering. So he was benign. And I will point out, he was not a tyrant because he was a politician in a democracy. <laughs> Interesting. Great. Yeah. So I have a quick uh, comment and then a question. Um, thanks for teasing out the question about Prometheus. I also had no idea, you know, the original story and the original vision of what hope was, <laughs> which I would, as a comment, just point out is pervasive at the moment in our best example of the way we talk about climate and we can't even look at the thing because we're defending our hope. So there's a, there's, a, there's a real lesson in that. So thank you. My question, uh, today even, there was an article in the, in the paper about a Chinese company that's built a, a drone with a machine gun on it and being able to sell it like on the market to whoever wants it. And so I'm, I'm interested in this idea that the gods have these things but it's a problem if it gets down to earth. And so I, my, my question is, what does that bring up for you, either examples of that problem in, the, in, the, in ancient times or your thoughts about what it means for today? I don't know of any uh, Greek um, examples of drone-like uh, entities, but... I can hear you. Sorry, I, well, but for the recording. I meant more of the idea of uh, the power of these things reaching um, outside of those who have power, the gods or the tyrants or the... Or oh, the, you absolutely. Know, what, what happens when these technologies reach the masses kind of question. Yeah, absolutely. There, I know that um, in Hindu uh, mythology, gods had really cosmic weapons that would rain death from the skies. And so just that whole idea of uh, ambush or attack from the skies is no defense that. And it seems uh, like a godlike power. So I, I don't know what more to say about it, but it's certainly a frightening development. Um. So one question about, um, you mentioned two automatons. One was the bronze bull. The other one, I believe, was the, um, the image of the wife that hugs people to death. Um, how are those controlled? Do we know how the automaton automation work with the eyes for the bull and things like that? Um, all we know is about the bronze bull uh, of King Phalaris, the details that we know are the ones that I gave you. Um, the bronze bulls that were made by Hephaestus, we don't have any further details except that they were realistic and they were animated somehow. Uh, we know that uh, Hephaestus was a, a technician and he, he did, we do have the details of the inner workings of of Talos, um, which is ironic since that's the oldest example we have of an automaton and we have the most details about it. And you just have to re 
keep in mind how much has been lost from antiquity. We only have the texts or fragments that have survived. So much has been lost and so much artwork has been lost. We learn a lot of details from the artwork. We know that the uh, that Tellus was imagined as a technological being because of those old vase paintings that show Jason using a tool. That's very rare. I don't think I don't think there are very many vase paintings that show someone using a tool uh, in that way. So there's a lot that's lost. Uh, we don't really have the details. Um, so firstly, I wanted to thank you because this talk is, is such a wonderful example of how critically important it is that people study humanities and think about ancient history um, and how these disciplines that we think of as maybe unrelated are so deeply related um, when people are just curious and going back to ancient times. But um, I have two unrelated questions. Uh, the first is sort of because it's such a, a, a prominent topic for now is whether these automatons and, and automated sort of applications, whether the balance of their benefit to humanity versus their use in the power application based on what you're seeing in history, where we have these sparse examples of their beneficial use and many examples of, of, of their power use. Um, and the second one is the, is the application we haven't talked about, which is sex, and whether there were any examples of that. <laughs> well, I can think of some beneficial machines uh, used in Democratic Athens. They had a voting machine and a lottery, sort of a lottery machines. Uh, um, so those were beneficial. And they also had machines for st stagecraft in the theater. They didn't, uh, it, it's, a, it's interesting that it, the democracy has benign uses of machines. Now for, uh, for sex and automatons. Um, well, first of all, there's the story of Pandora. She is made to be an extremely seductive, ravishing, young woman, and all of the gods give her uh, attributes uh, as she's being created. So someone gives her persuasion, and another one gives her uh, beauty, and um, Hermes, that sly trickster god, he gives her the soul of a female dog. Um, <laughs> so we don't hear about the sex uh, between Epimetheus and Pandora. Um, she sort of just disappears after she's carried out her mission on earth. But the Roman poet Ovid imagined that they did have sex and that, they, that she was so lifelike that she gave birth to a, bo a baby boy and a baby girl, um, which is, I think is sort of interesting since that's sort of the theme of the second Blade Runner show about whether or not automaton, <laughs> can automatons become that real? Um, and then, of course, there's the story of Daedalus making the artificial cow that was so realistic. Um, he even used the cow hide uh, of um, cows that were in a bull, the bull's pasture. He made that artificial cow so that the queen Pasiphae, who was married to King Minos, the tyrant of Crete, um, she cursed her husband, and we don't know the reason, but she gave him a particularly diabolical uh, magical spell. She was another witch. So that every time he ejaculated, he ejaculated spiders and scorpions. 
So um, he was having a hard time in life. And <laughs> Zeus uh, was a patron of King Minos, and so he um, put a curse on Pasiphae and made her fall in love with the most magnificent bull in King Minos' herd. And so she begged Daedalus, this craftsman, to make her a cow that she could crawl inside and have sex with the bull. And so we have that story. And then we have... Do you want more? <laughs> Pygmalion, the story of Pygmalion. You all know that story, right? And once again, it's a kind of romantic story. It's supposed to be romantic. Pygmalion uh, makes this beautiful statue of a young woman and prays to the goddess, and she comes uh, alive. Um, but if you read the story, it's really creepy. I mean, Pygmalion is a guy who hates real women. They're just too real for him, and so he makes his ideal woman a virgin, beautiful, and he takes that statue to bed every night. And we have dozens of stories of men falling in love with realistic statues from that time period. The Greeks even had a name for it. Agalmophilia means statue lust. And <laughs> this is the uncanny valley right yeah. there. I mean, these guys would sneak into temples at night and have sex with, especially, statues of Aphrodite, because they were particularly beautiful, and leave evidence of their shocking crimes <laughs> to be found in the morning. So, now, <laughs> I should have given a trigger warning for that. The more things uh, change. <laughs> Do we got another question for you? Hi. Sorry. Um, thank you for your presentation. Uh, this might be a little bit more serious. Yes. The, the I'm ready. Um, I'm, I'm thinking about another Prometheus, Epimetheus myth, specifically being, you know, Prometheus constructing man out of clay. Yes. Um, and I wonder how your reading of these myths of automata might be reread, um, considering the human as the potential first automaton. Ah, um, on the other side of that, of course, recognizing that these gods are human created, um, and you could, yeah, you could bring in your concept of power uh, and the importance of power in that as well, if, if you want. But, yeah. uh, absolutely. Ah, that's a philosophical question. Um, and this uh, this picture that's uh, up here right now is Prometheus building the first human uh, from scratch. He's starting with the framework. <clears throat> He's starting with the skeleton as the framework, and then he'll add uh, the flesh and the sinew and all the organs. Um, and he's using tools to do it. Um, so <coughs> are we all um, just puppets of gods? Uh, and I think Plato was maybe one of the first to bring that question up. In one of his dialogues, he says, let's imagine that we're all just puppets of gods, superior beings. Um, so, yeah, I think that's a, certainly shows power. So my question relates to basically the authors of these <coughs> stories, right? And ancient stories are not only about history, they usually also entail some sort of educational purpose and have a moral subline or subtext. 
Are there any references from these ancient authors that said, tell us how to deal with this? How, so, to, how to live with it. How to deal with it, actually. Yeah. How to react to, to it. Shall we now destroy all technology? <laughs> Should we more or less try to take the technology to the masses? Or what's, what's the lesson to be learned from the perspective, maybe, of yeah, the authors back then? That, that's an, um, an interesting question. It makes me think of Aristotle, who um, knew all these myths, of course, uh, and he was justifying uh, slavery in uh, one of his treatises. And it's, it's a really bad defense of slavery. Everyone agrees that he doesn't have a very rational uh, defense of slavery. But right in the middle of his defense of slavery, the Athenians had a lot of slaves, um, he just goes off onto this thought experiment and says, well, now, what if we had automatons like Hephaestus made for the gods? What if we had looms that could weave on their own? What if we had instruments, uh, musical instruments that could play themselves? Well, we wouldn't need slaves. And, he, and then he just drops it and goes back. Um, <laughs> why didn't he continue that uh, train of thought? That would have been quite interesting. Um, but at least he's musing on the economic and social uh, ramifications of automatons uh, imagining and trying to think what would happen if we had them here in Athens. And the fact that he put it in writing, even though he dropped the, dropped the thought and didn't continue it, the fact that he put it in writing makes me think that maybe that was a, a topic of conversation among philosophers. And we just have that scrap of uh, a hint. Yeah. We have time for one, one more question. Thank you for that fabulous presentation. Thank you. Um, my question is actually, could you give us a few more examples uh, from <coughs> the East, or as explain the East, Asia, um, China, India, etc. cetera? Uh, and do they uh, precede the examples that you've given us from Europe and, and um, Egypt? And are they of the same? Uh, primarily use of power uh, to exercise tyranny, or do they have other purposes? That's a good question. Uh, people ask if maybe Greece was the, it was unique, and I don't, think, I don't think they were. It's just that we have a lot of information, and I particularly don't, don't uh, I don't study India or China, but I did find examples, and one of my favorites is you and I were discussing this. Um, there was a legend that comes from India from the time of, uh, we don't know the exact date of this legend. Um, it comes from a text that is uh, the first written text of oral legend, so they could be very old. The text itself is from something like second century BC to first century AD, something like that, but the stories are much older. And it's from, it's in, the language of Burma, Sanskrit, and Chinese. So it's really deep in the East, and it concerns a, a crew of robotic warriors that defended the relics of Buddha after he died. And it, according to the story, when Buddha died, um, his bodily remains were hidden 
under a, a stupa in a secret chamber and guarded by these robot warriors. Um, and they were said to spin uh, so fast that they would chop up anyone who came near them. Uh, and these were set in place by King, uh, I'm not going to pronounce this correctly, Ajatasutra, Satra or Sutra. Um, and these were to remain in place guarding Buddha's relics until King Ashoka would come and defeat them or disable them somehow and then distribute the relics of Buddha. We know that he did that. So it's a very interesting legend. And in the legend, the plans for the robots came from Alexandria, the Silicon Valley of, of, of the West. They were stolen by an engineer in India who traveled there specifically to learn how to make them, and he brought the plans. He somehow either sewed the plans under his skin or tattooed them onto his body. No, no one is really sure about the translation. And he knew that these robot makers, it, it's very interesting the way they describe the West. The robot makers are not allowed to reveal their secrets of making robots in the, in the West. Um, they, in fact, there are assassin robots that will chase them down and kill them if they try to tell their secrets. So he knew his body would never get back to India, but he told his son where he had hidden the plans. And sure enough, the robot assassins kill him on the way back to India, and his son brings the plans. So, I mean, it's a very complicated story, but um, it doesn't really have any tyrants. It's a, it's a beneficial use of those robots. Yeah. A little bit of uh, industrial espionage there. <laughs> so uh, that's, that's it for the evening. Adrian is going to be signing uh, her books, and I, I highly encourage you to read it. It's very entertaining and very illuminating. There's also a lot of details about actual engineering that she touched on tonight, but there's a lot more about what people were actually doing as well as the mythologies that you vaguely remember from your youth and <laughs> now realize they're more interesting than you thought they were. Thanks again. Please. If you enjoyed this talk, check out previous episodes with Neil Stevenson, Stuart Brand, Kim Stanley Robinson, and many more. Find them on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or wherever you like to listen. The Long Now Foundation is a member-supported nonprofit dedicated to fostering long-term thinking and responsibility. Long Now members make everything we do possible. Learn more at longnow.org.